Yo, yo, yo. Yo, we're live. We're live. We're live. We're alive also. We're also live. And this is episode 20, by the way. Oh, is it? It is what? episode 20. Nice. It took us longer to get here than, ex than I expected, but part of me also expected us to never get there. So I think it's like cause for celebration in a way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It does. It does. So That's yeah. Great. How's it going? Good, man. Good. It's been uh, almost two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it's been yeah. two weeks. We missed one one week. Yeah. It's fine. It's good, though. It's good. I've definitely kept a great momentum in uh, just the side projects little by little. Nice. But I, uh, I'm not taking... I wouldn't say I'm not taking them seriously. I'm not taking progress and... Maybe efficiency series. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I don't, I don't strive for a particular yeah. goal. I'm trying to learn as much as possible. Like that's actually been, actually that's been my goal. Just learning as much as I can from what I'm doing. Do you? I'm sure you you've seen it. Do you remember the talk, the selfish programmer from I think RailsConf 2018 or 19? Oh darn! It's been so long, but yeah, I do remember it where the guy talks about kind of the right attitude for side projects and how it's okay to be kind of selfish and not strive for the same, same things yeah, that yeah, yeah, taught yeah. at work. Yeah, exactly. This exactly. That's exactly what I've been doing. Yeah. So I've been trying to do two things. I've been trying to get myself more organized, but like getting myself just a little bit organized, it's getting myself a lot organized because that's just mm. like, I've never had any kind of, I don't have much structure in uh, or like record keeping, I guess, if yeah. that makes sense. I don't, I didn't use, um, like, I really don't use, like, we talked about this before schedules. I don't use a calendar. I don't use things like that. So I've been trying to do just, just the bare minimum just to see how yeah. it goes. And, and it's been, uh, it's been going great. I, uh, so what I did first since, you know, using Trello for, for a couple of things, I've decided to just set myself a personal board. And kind of have things on a, um, for now at least, right? Yeah. Get it on a more, I don't know, like general basis, if you can say, like have chunks of pieces rather than breaking them down. For example, if I have mm. a particular project, I'll just put the name of the project there yeah. without breaking down the steps that I need to get there. Yeah. But just to, just to have it there and be like, let's like, don't forget about this. You still have this. So that's one yeah. thing I did. And then the other stuff is I'm trying to learn as much as possible from the things that I'm doing. So I'm kind of basing my decisions around that. Yeah. Um, so for, uh, like I didn't mention this before, like for example, with the Taskflow API, the reason why I went for GraphQL is because I actually wanted to learn GraphQL. I could have easily just finished the thing in two seconds, not in two seconds, but I could have <laughs> finished the thing faster if I would have just done it restful because that's yeah. kind of what I've been, what I do at work, what I've been doing. And it's just very familiar to me. I know how to approach it but I didn't know how to set that up in GraphQL. So I was like, this looks really interesting. And I've seen a gazillion articles about um, Phoenix and uh, GraphQL being so well put together. So that's why I wanted to tackle it. And that's the reason why I learned that. And, uh, and another thing that I had uh, on my like backlog, personal backlog is I had the, I have my personal portfolio site redesign, mm, which I don't, nice. I don't have to, but I was like, I just, I looked at this thing like a couple of weeks ago 
because yeah. I saw one of my uh, fellow mod team members from the Odin project shared their uh, their portfolio site, and I was like, "Oh, I forgot about mine. Let me go check mine." So I like checked mine, and I'm like, "Ew." Yeah, don't remind me. <laughs> so I was like, I need to uh, change a lot of things here. And then the, at the time, on on the same train of thought, uh, when I, you know, spawned it up, I wanted, I was like, you know, invested in learning view. So I have have started hearing about Nuxt, which is the hmm. uh, equivalent of Next.js for Vue. Just the server side rendering, and so I I did it on that, which I it wasn't necessary, but I just wanted to learn it, so I did yeah. that. So I was like, I'll just do the same thing here. And one thing that I've been meaning to mess with so much lately is Phoenix Live View. Oh, nice! So uh, especially since it comes up on my Twitter feed all the time from uh, like Jose Valim, you know, making progress on it, and other people just sharing. Um, what exactly does it do? So it um, it's a way of kind of via web sockets, more or less, um, be able to handle the DOM with no mm. JavaScript. So just pure Elixir and just the events. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's funny. It's it's. Uh, remember we, we uh, <laughs> uh, they had a. Uh, I showed you the video on. Um, so Ruby has like the same thing recently, yeah. which I showed you the the um, stimulus reflex. Yeah, stimulus reflex and cable ready. Yeah, yeah, that looks really cool too. It's funny because oh, we were so talking nice. about this, and it's like I saw. So, um, so first of all, like just diving in it, it's pretty cool. You um, have kind of like you've dived into React, right? So it's yeah. kind of like it it throws you kind of the same life cycles in a way. Mm. Um, it has yeah. life cycles. It's not the same ones, but you have your mount which is like kind of the constructor, I guess, mm. um, uh, on like you have a live folder in the same place where you would have your controllers and your views and templates and stuff like that. You have a live folder where you declare these, uh, views, right? Yeah. Live views. And you just declare your mount and that's your kind of like initial entry point. And then you can either, you can either call a, a embedded HTML on live um, Elixir um, mm -hmm. for your view for your HTML, and then if you call it the same name as your um, as your module that you you're declaring in your live view, then it automatically renders that view. Mm, interesting. Or alternatively, you have a function which is called render, and then there you can declare what you want to render. Um, mm. so, and then besides that, you have like these little things within the HTML that it's embedded. Like you have like PHX for Phoenix, you know, yeah. like dash click, which like anything on that click, uh, on that event, you can, uh, pass it down to the event to the live mm. component and stuff like that. Yeah. So I've been messing around with that. Nice. And, uh, it seems like it's the way to go, but there's definitely a couple things missing. So for example, on my portfolio site, one of the things, so they have like the, the um embedded for like the events for clicks they have the events for um like on change they have the event for like a bunch of stuff but it's still a lot of things missing like for example scroll is not there like on scroll mm. so that i had to create on my own because i'm doing something in my portfolio site where i need to like actually verify once you start scrolling yeah 
um, and change something based on that. So I had to like, <laughs> it seemed kind of silly because I had to, I had to, I had to write uh, a little bit of JavaScript Whoa. for it, which kind of seems like it defeats the purpose of using LiveView. But uh, on the upside, though, it is version zero point twelve LiveView. So there's still like there's still some way to go, but yeah. It seems uh, yeah, but I'm re- like I just I also want to check out that cable ready and and stimulus reflex though. It's just it's funny. Rails has picked up kind of so much speed recently that it's yeah it's impressive. The stimulus reflex cable ready really interesting way to kind of have more reactive interactions in the in the front end and so easy so easy it's actually it seems easier than than phoenix and yeah. it's funny because they show that when the phoenix live view 0.12 came out they were uh, they threw a video out and they were like build a uh twitter clone in 15 minutes <laughs> and then i think like two days later i send you the video yeah. where ruby is like build a <laughs> Twitter feed in 10 minutes which seems <laughs> like a it looked like a rap battle it was so funny it was like yeah. retaliation especially you if guys it's can based do it around 15, like very s- yeah especially if it's based around like very similar technologies or solutions it's just hilarious mm-hmm. how they kind of both tackle the same problem and trying to like one up each other yeah exactly one up each other yeah it's, but, it's great yeah it's super interesting to me that like we have or got stimulus reflex now for rails they're doing the, I'm not sure if you've saw, I've seen it, they're doing a WTF month of May, where based on certain frustrations around how the maintainers responded to kind of certain feedback on the issues and these kind of things, they kind of, I was actually quite impressed with this, like instead of becoming like super defensive about the negative feedback that they received, they actually seem to have sat down with the people who brought up the feedback and they decided to kind of work together to figure out what to do. So they created a forum, like a sub forum in in Mm -hmm. the Rails forums, where for like the whole month of May, you can post things that you stumble upon while working with Rails, like that makes you go like WTF is going on here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, things that are not technically bugs, so they would probably be close if you would open like a GitHub issue because they don't qualify mm-hmm. as a bug in the framework. But we're like, hey, this is not a nice development experience, or like, hey, this is just I'm always tripping over this. And that's super interesting to see this initiative. And like the goal is that after this month, they are or throughout the month, they're gathering all the ideas. They are kind of figuring out which which things kind of come up more often and like investigating them uh, with the goal that in the long run they can create like a better development experience and prioritize a few of these things that are yeah not technically bugs but just things that could be improved and there are a few interesting ones coming out of this i'm not sure if you've used mini tests uh with rails instead of rspec yeah when i first started out i, I used i used mini tests. that was kind of like i'm this is what i'm going to use and then yeah. i went into the uh, job market and everyone's rspec i'm like oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was my my same. So one of the things that has been a little bit f- weird and like is one of these examples that have come up in this uh, is that with Rails five, I think, when they introduced system tests, you had you could run Rails test or you could run Rails colon te- uh, no Rails test colon system to run system mm-hmm. tests, but you could never run both 
types of tests in one. You could never run your unit tests and your system tests just with one command. Okay. And this has always been like one of these things that is not technically a bug, but it's still weird behavior. Mm-hmm. And now they added Rails test colon all, which runs your unit tests and your system tests as one. And it's like a super small, like almost trivial thing to come out yeah. of this feedback that they've collected. But it's also not something that was like too critical for anyone to kind of make a fuss about in the issue tracker. And it was mm-hmm. also not technically a bug, so it just didn't get any attention. Right. And these are the kind of things they're currently looking at. And that's just makes me feel so good about the ecosystem that you have people that are invested to a like voice their concerns and then you have people that are willing to accept feedback even though they've been managing this for like 12 years or so oh yeah for sure and then for both sides to kind of come together and find like a productive creative solution that actually moves everything forward it's just super exciting to see the rails community is just amazing yeah so that was pretty nice yeah the other thing that I just have to think about right now, because we're both like, I think really enjoying working with strongly typed languages right now, mm. was the keynote of DHH for the Rails Conf Couch Edition. I'm not sure if you saw that. Oh no, where I haven't he, seen that. So it is like, it's an interview style. It's like, I think 45 minutes or so where he answers some questions and talks about like his views and opinions. And it's actually pretty interesting. And he makes a really strong point that he dislikes sorbet and like the strong typing that is coming to Ruby. Okay. It's like, yeah, okay, put it in, but like make it optional, like never make this like piece of the language. I will mm-hmm. hate you if you do. Um, it was so interesting because, yeah, especially now, like me working with Rust, you working with Elixir, we are both seeing some of the benefits that typed languages have. Mm-hmm. And... On one hand, like Ruby is really going like full steam ahead with dynamic typing and like it is the language for me to like it's the best example for like duck typing and like you don't care about types as long as what you do kind of works. But yeah, it's also super enjoyable to actually have types and it was really interesting to kind of hear DHH talk about this tension between kind of where some part of the community is going and then what for example like he really values this dynamic nature of ruby and that there are like a thousand ways to do the same thing and -hmm. depending on the situation one might be better than the other and in the next situation might be the other way around because each of them has like a certain expresses a certain intent that the other doesn't that while both might achieve the same goal still tells the developer something about what is happening and it was really interesting to hear kind of this discussion and like reflect a little bit on like where especially like Ruby is going with like Ruby three on the horizon and uh basecamp building hay, which I think will also get some like really interesting features back into Rails. Um mm-hmm. so yeah. Why? Why would that why would that play anything into Rails? Um because they have also, so DHH has hinted that they've come up with some interesting ways to A, build a little bit more modern UIs. Mm-hmm. With oh, I see. The other thing that is super interesting is that for Hey, like the thing that they really stressed is that, so Hey.com is their like new email service for anybody who's unaware that is launching. I think they're starting invites or like accepting it or signing up people in June was what they mentioned. Um, 
One of the things that they mentioned is that like for Basecamp, most users have used a desktop app or the web, like the browser to access Basecamp. For what? For oh, Basecamp for base itself. And only mm-hmm. a very small percentage of users has used the mobile apps. So while their mobile apps are pretty good, they are not, yeah, they, they are just good. Let's say that they are not exceptional examples for like really good mobile UIs and like mobile, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mobile user experience more broadly. But with Hey.com, they were like, hey, where do you read your mails? Like you read them 95% of time on your mobile phone. Like yeah, this is where you have to have a great user experience. And from the kind of hints that DHH dropped, my strong suspect, like what I suspect is that what they figured out is how to build like a nice framework that allows them to still has have the same like server-side pure Ruby approach to how they work that delivers way, way better mobile apps than before. And this is what I'm really mobile curious apps, about you, to see. What do you mean? Like that it will it will be responsive or in the browser? No, so what they did device? with Basecamp is that Basecamp's mobile apps is apparently like 5% native, 95% web. Because the only things, so it's it's mostly web views and then the navigation and like notifications and these kind of things are implemented in a native shell. So mm-hmm. for um, iOS, they used Swift. For Android, they used Java to build like um, a native shell mm-hmm. that has like all of these native concepts that are relevant. Like iOS has a different way to navigate through apps than Android has. Mm-hmm. So for these parts of the app that are like important for the user experience, they it. use native code. And then everything else is still server-side rendered coming from the HTTP or like the HTML backend. Mm-hmm. And with Hey.com, I would strongly assume that they followed a very similar approach where mm-hmm. most of the stuff is still coming from like a Rails backend. Mm-hmm. But the overall user experience is still way, way better and feels like more native and like more um, I'm excited and- to see what that will look like. I actually just sent an email to the uh, the Hey um, oh, yeah. uh, thing so to get on the list. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. So for me, the interesting part is really to like see what they've done with mobile. Like if they're really from kind of the last things they've did while working on Hey, like they've extracted extracted really interesting frameworks from their work back into Rails, like Action Mailer and Action Text as like the two prime examples that come out of their work on Hey.com. So I'm curious to see if they have like a third framework that they will eventually publish that huh. makes it easier to build mobile apps for your rails powered web apps wow like that, that is that is so a big awesome. question mark for me whether or not yeah. they found like a pattern that is so generic in a way that you can actually use it to build your own mobile apps if you need to that are mainly driven by like yeah your web uh, rail server in the back and like web tech and these kind of things i want to ditch my gmail um most definitely and I I actually signed up uh, uh, some time ago to the free account of uh, Proton Mail. Oh yeah, that's what I've and been using yesterday, for. Yesterday I was looking to sign to actually sign up. Yeah, and I was, and they actually have a great deal with uh, um, Proton Mail with the their Proton VPN. Yeah, for like one hundred fifteen dollars for the whole year. Oh, that's not too bad. Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and you get like five accounts, five email accounts, and stuff like that. Yeah. And, 
Yeah, I have I think used it for, for like a few years, I think now, with kind of mm -hmm. custom domains and these kind of things. Yeah, they have the custom domains as well on that on that price model. Yeah, it's actually pretty nice. Um, although there are always like one or two things that I find a little bit annoying, but I guess that's with every email provider. So yeah. one of the things that like where I'm really excited and I might, so I'm hoping that hey.com might become the email service that I want to use long-term. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that kind of bugs me with Proton Mail is that I feel it's it's a thing built by engineers. You feel that through and through. Yeah, it's something built by engineers. I, and designed day, by engineers too. Like what drives me mad is that on like mobile and on web, you have different workflows around how you kind of manage mail. One of them mm. is really built around like move, making it easy to put mails into your archive. Like on mobile, you just have to swipe and the email goes to your archive. But the same flow does not exist on the web version. Like on the web, I have to like click the mail and then the button that is shown is I think delete is shown before archive. And this is what frustrates me a little bit with the service is that I feel like they're, and now they're like talking about building like Proton Drive and Proton like calendar and contacts and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I don't care. I just want a really good email um, yeah. solution with like workflows that make sense that actually help me get like manage my email and with protomail i feel it's really it's a really like technically well engineered and like well well built platform but i might actually ditch it if hey.com supports custom domains and catch all are like the two features that i am looking for how do you migrate though, like contacts and and stuff like that? That's that's the so, thing that I'm always like, I'm like, okay, I do want to use this Proton yeah. Mail now, but how am I like, am I gonna go to like my clients and be like, hey, like don't email me on this email anymore, email me on this other one, and then no, go so to the next one and the next one and stuff. This is why you use custom domains, because then you don't need to actually switch your email address. You can just tell people to like email you at rob at robpando.com or something. Gotcha. And then where the email go uh, goes is completely like transparent to the user. Like ah, darn it! Wish I would have known this. It's not too late. You can still start setting this up. Like, but I'll still have to be like, hey, don't email me at this anymore. Email me at this other email. You can't avoid this forever, but maybe let's put one last effort in to get to your own domain, and then after yeah, exactly. that, I will do that. I will for sure do that. You don't need to tell everyone when you switch services again. Yeah. And then like with ProtonMail, the only then technical tip. challenge is actually like exporting all your emails because they are encrypted on their server. I love that. I don't want to export my emails. I want them to stay encrypted. Yeah. So that's the only thing. <laughs> like, that makes me feel so secure for some reason. It's yeah. so shallow. But whenever I sign in into ProtonMail, it's like decrypting your mail. I'm like, ah, good. Are you using the ProtonMail bridge? Mm, what is that? So with ProtonMail Bridge, you can install a small program on your Mac that is essentially a proxy for your email so that you can use Apple Mail with ProtonMail or any other email client with ProtonMail. Ah, I see. And then no, the bridge will connect to ProtonMail, download the encrypted emails and then de uh, decrypt them on your local machine so that other email clients can read them. But hear me out, though. What if Apple is stealing your emails once that happens? 
So if Apple is stealing my emails, I have a way bigger problem than they reading my emails. Then they would have access. Like, if Apple would become a malicious uh, party, everything I own and everything I have ever done on the internet will be at risk because, yeah, my MacBook <laughs> knows more about me than my girlfriend. I think. <laughs> just like with one password alone, like just ooh, really yeah. trusting Apple here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So to kind of recap, Rails, super interesting what's going on there. Yeah. It- and with yeah, the developments in this uh, space, really excited to kind of see somebody tackling email. And I'm like super interested to see what they have come up with, both in terms of like a really nice UX for email, but also technically a solution for building mobile apps with Rails or That'd be pretty awesome. Supporting them. Like, I don't want to say building them. I think that's too far-fetched, but supporting them with with Rails. Because the dream is still to have, like, a a monolith and... Yeah. I like... No, it is. I do. I am really, really loving the progress that's happening in Rails, but I am just so freaking in love with Elixir right now. Yeah. uh, It's it's just... It's it's blowing me away. I'm, I'm enjoying programming so much right now. <clears throat> back again that's a very nice to hear yeah. and yeah i can understand it um i find it hard to find problems that are really kind of shaped well for using rails right now what mm. i'm and this is just it could just be a phase and like in half a year it's completely different again but right now as of today i'm like mostly working on tools that are really kind of client focused and don't actually like most of them don't actually require a server a server to be honest like most of them could just be desktop apps or like small like in browser things and yeah that's really not kind of rails domain so as much as i would like to work with rails again and like try out these things like stimulus reflex and like building cooler newer more modern feeling apps with rails i also just can't get myself to find a use case i'm really passionate about that i would want to invest the time and to actually do it yeah. And then on the other hand, like everything that's more like stronger tied to the client, for me, TypeScript is still something that's super interesting that I would want to explore. I am mm-hmm. curious, like I've been reading some articles around the interaction of Rust and TypeScript to build essentially like web apps or whatever you want to build with them. They have that for right now with the new project that came out, the Deno. I runtime. Yeah, I have to server. look more into this. Like, this is something I would want to discuss, but maybe keep that for next time because I feel like I have some strong opinions that I first need to validate. No, 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 definitely look true. it up. But I just want to mention yeah. that, that project is entirely Rust and TypeScript. Yeah, that is interesting. But like, one of the things that I read was somebody saying, like, "Hey, I've been using Rust to kind of write the backend or write." like libraries in, in uh, WebAssembly and then use TypeScript, but it just doesn't feel like a perfect match because the development experience is so different. Mm-hmm. So this is something that I would want to explore as well and then see if it does seem to me that like WebAssembly is the answer to this problem, but I'm not sure what the ecosystem say is currently. Mm, true. Yeah, that's always, it's been, it's yeah, it's been quite some time now and, and I don't feel like there's been much progress to be honest. 
I'm not sure. Like, on, like in WebAssembly itself as like a standard, it feels to be rather slow moving in a lot of parts. But then the ecosystem adoption on the other side has been really interesting to see. Like the tooling that you get in Rust, for example, to build like WebAssembly modules or um, also apps is pretty cool. Because essentially the frameworks have picked up the where the the standard kind of stopped. Like the framework is written in like a very generic way and like. I think what's good is it tried to cover like the bare minimum that you need to have like interoperability between browsers. Yeah. It didn't try to tackle like more complex problems that would have mm-hmm. um, like slowed down or prevented the implementation of the standard. And as a consequence, one of the things is that you can only pass like primitive types from JavaScript to WebAssembly, for example, and back. Yes. But then you have all these frameworks that have built around this that allow you to pass high-level types because they do the decoding and encoding on both sides of the equation. Mm -hmm. And the Rust tooling for this is just insane. Um, It's very nice. It just, the code generation is is perfect. Yeah. Um, So it still feels like you get all of these like high-level interfaces and the frameworks hide how basic WebAssembly still is essentially. Yeah. yeah. What we didn't find time to really go into, which is also something that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts and opinions on, is domain-driven design. Oh, after man. after we talked, so actually, like quite literally, after we recorded the last episode two weeks ago, I was thinking about my project that I'm working on, and I started to run into some issues where I was working on kind of more advanced features or workflows and I wasn't really happy with how the code was structured. And I'm not sure why and how I got this into my head, but I was like, hey, maybe this is an interesting opportunity to explore domain-driven design. Because Rob and Pablo, shout out to Pablo. Shout out to Pablo. Especially Pablo, to be honest, like he has been a driving force um, for advocating domain-driven design in our kind of circle of friends for, for the last I remember, years. Yeah. So I was like, hey, maybe this is the time to kind of check this out. And in a way, it sounds super interesting. And I'm like really committed to diving deeper into this. But actually implementing this has been a really tough nut to crack. And I'm really, really oh, curious yeah. to hear your opinions on this. Wait, but, how far along did you get though? So I like, did you just start reading up on it or like Um Yeah, let's like because we're running shorter in time, I'll give you the two-minute version. I try to get like some good summaries and from these good summary like from the few summaries i feel like i've got kind of the core concepts i tried to watch a few talks but i found it really hard to find like good talks on the internet on domain driven design that are not immediately like enterprise software because Mm -hmm. i'm not building like an enterprise kind of software thing i just Mm -hmm. want to have like uh or practice this in like a small contained example and kind of see how it would feel or behave so i started to kind of get the foundation um understand how it's supposed to work then i and this was actually quite fun and felt really valuable is trying to then model my my domain with like really simple terms like trying to develop this ubiquitous language to figure out what are the actual like moving pieces in my app and ironically or interestingly enough, I started writing documentation the moment I started working on this tool. Nice. And one of the Smart. first things I started documenting are the core concepts. And these were 
in the end, descriptions and definition of all the core elements of my domain. So when I read about like the ubiquitous language that you use to describe everything with like the same terminology, I was like, hey, I've Mm -hmm. been, this is what I've been working on with my documentation to make sure everybody's on the same page. We all use the same words like consistently throughout the code and the docs. Felt really validating and actually pretty easy to kind of incorporate this. So Mm-hmm. mapped out my domain model and then started essentially throwing away what I had and rewriting it with like these very basic uh, types yeah. and as a consequence of this what is what feels really nice is that suddenly my domain model doesn't care about for example persisting these types like everything that has to do with like managing the files in the file system for now is gone from my code and I can really focus on like the core concepts like what is a library how are files like stored in the library? How are they linked? Like I can talk about these high level concepts without actually having to go into really kind of icky implementation details. Exactly. But this is also where I'm now stuck. Like I feel like I have a very rudimentary kind of idea of how my domain model might look, but then taking the next step to think about a persistence, like how to actually now make sure that what I have in my domain is represented on disk. And how do I implement workflows on top of this? Like, is everything suddenly like a service that I have to build? Like, is every interaction that I can have with my domain modeled through a service? Or do things have behavior by themselves? Like, is indexing a library something that a service object does because it has to work with like all these different parts? Or can a library index itself? Because in the end, this is what I do. I index a library. Like mm-hmm. this is where I'm now kind of getting stuck a little bit and where I struggle to find like really good information on. Yeah, I, that that I agree with you. When I was trying to research it, the like finding information on this and just, I don't know, it's weird because there is information, right? But to find, I don't know, it's like to find good sources or yeah. to find ways to understand it better or yeah. like people, videos, tutorials text to explain it in a more basic way rather than just you know i don't know it's just it's hard to find it, it is hard feels to, to me like it's a lot of like tribal knowledge and if you would talk with someone who has experience with this within five minutes you would have all the answers that you need like yeah i would yeah, describe my problem and within two minutes i would have a solution that i just need to go implement because it's awesome and it answers everything that i that i'm struggling with now yeah. But trying to get that from the internet has proven to be surprisingly difficult. It is. But it is. I agree with you. Yeah, this is like my project for the next few days. Like we have a long holiday weekend coming up. Thursday is a public yeah. holiday here. So I yeah. hope to have some time to kind of dedicate to to this project again. And I want to see if I can kind of work through some of these issues. And then we can talk about this in the next episode. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Should we wrap it? Yeah, let's wrap it up here. Awesome. That was not necessarily what we planned to talk about, but something that I think we, like the Ray stuff has been on our minds, I think for the last few weeks. I know, we've been meaning to for sure. Yeah, so super happy that we found some time. Yeah. Cool, then take care, stay healthy, stay inside. You too, man. And talk to you next week. Talk to you. Bye.